0: And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance. As your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Feel free to grab a seat. Um, Sometimes in the scriptures we come to hard passages, We come to passages in which we don't truly uh, know what to do with. And uh, this is one of those passages. So, we're going to talk about what do we do with it. Uh, Thanks for being here. Thanks for, um, you know, showing up on a hot June morning. Uh, Spring disappeared, and summer is here and oppressive. I do not like it, but we live here, so we got to deal with it. Uh, We're grateful for you. We hope you will be able to make it out this Saturday to serve with us um, for Juneteenth. Um, If you're not familiar, Juneteenth is the day in which we commemorate um, the release of American slaves. And it is a day, especially as a country, that celebrates liberty and freedom. We should celebrate liberty and freedom in all of its forms. And so uh, we will be celebrating, we will be excited, and it will be awesome. So we hope you can join us this Friday. Well, if you're new or you haven't been here for a while, we have been in a series through the book of Colossians. Um, Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and in particular, it is this beautiful explanation of how great Christ is. You know, Easter was a few months ago, but we're just not quite over it. Easter is the event for Christians. If Easter did not happen, we are wasting our time. If Jesus didn't conquer the grave, then this is a charade. And so we as the Christian community who know that Christ conquered the grave, we continue to reflect on what that means for us. And I can think of no better place to do it than in the book of Colossians. A few things um, to think about as we work our way through this letter. First, that this is a letter written, written to a young church. So the Apostle Paul, sitting in a Roman prison, hears of his friend's church plant, and he writes to that church plant. He writes arguing that in Christ, in the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, that a new kingdom has been started remember the opening lines from chapter three if then you have been raised with christ seek the things that are above where christ is seated at the right hand of god set your mind on things that are above not things that are on earth paul develops the idea that we have been immigrated in our allegiance to christ to a new community to a new kingdom, that we are no longer a part of the empires or the nations of this world, but we now serve a new king and a new politic. So that means our priorities, our culture, our way of life has been left behind, and we learn to adopt a new way defined by Christ and by Christ alone. And then finally, Paul writes that spiritual maturity is learning to live in accordance with that new kingdom. As we have been moved into a new community, a new kingdom, a new government, a new politic, we must learn what it is to live under the guidance of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And Paul believes that spiritual maturity is built on healthy relationships. It's built on what happens between us that it is the overflow of our relationship with Christ that happens in between us. And this transformation of relationships is what Paul is specifically speaking of in chapter 3, verses 17, through chapter 4, verse 1, which sounds awesome until you read the passage. (laughs) Until the opening line, wives submit to your husbands, come up. That sounds great, Paul, but I'm not so sure about that. Paul clearly did not get it. Sometimes we can come to passages like this, and it can feel out of date. It can feel misogynistic. It can feel just outright out of bounds. This is a passage that is known as a household code, These are instructions to Christian people on domestic matters. They define what home life should look like. But many of these instructions, particularly the instructions we read today, sound out of date. They ring as, ah, I don't know about that. At best, they sound antiquated. At worst, they sound outright misogynistic, domineering, and biased towards the wealthy. When we come to passages like this that are on the surface problematic, we can respond in one of a few ways. We can breeze over it, keep reading, and focus on the parts we like. That's generally what I do. I'm like, I'm ah, just going to skip on over that, and we're going to get to the parts about Jesus. We can just outright ignore it, call it a product of a bygone age, and keep on keeping on. We can just gloss right over it. Or we can say, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. We could. I don't think that's the best option. And it actually is a phrase that annoys the bejesus out of me. So don't come up to me and say, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Because preferably, the thing that we as a community want to do is we want to wrestle with it. We want to sit in it and try and understand what is this revealing about the nature of Christ? What is this revealing about the nature of the kingdom? What is this saying? And even problematic texts have gold at the end of them. If we can dig into it enough and through the guidance of the spirit and through an understanding of what the gospel is about, we can begin to understand what is going on. In my humble opinion, one of the most challenging aspects of Christian, uh, American Christianity or the American church is our false sense of knowing the Bible. The Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it without much nuance, without much digging into the history, without much digging into the culture. In my humble opinion, this is one of the most damaging aspects that the church has embraced. Spend two minutes on hashtag Bible on Instagram and it will become very apparent that this text is sometimes just used as a sword against anyone and everyone we want it to be. I think it takes a little bit of wrestling with the text in order to get to the place in which we understand what the Spirit is trying to communicate. The Bible was not written in America. Surprise, it wasn't written in, like, Cincinnati, Ohio. Shout out to Cassie. It wasn't written in English. The New King James and the King James were not the first. Jesus did not read from the King James. Jesus didn't even speak English. It wasn't even written in the last millennia. It was written thousands of years ago in a culture not our own, in a language not our own. The Bible is anything but simple. The Bible is a library of ancient literature revealing God's activity to bring about beauty, to bring about justice, to bring about flourishing out of the chaos of our world. It was written over a thousand years by people who have a very different lifestyle from our own. And it is going to take thoughtfulness. It is going to take research. It's going to take an open-minded curiosity to examine what this text has to say to us. The Bible is strange. It's ancient and it's foreign. And I think we should approach it as such. I think we should approach it with a sense of curiosity, maybe even suspending our assumptions about what we think it has to say to us. I think time and time again, we should approach the text with curiosity, with an open-mindedness and an interest in finding out what it has to say about Christ and about us. I think if we breeze over it, or ignore, or just accept a passage like this at surface value, we will completely miss the revolutionary love that Paul is trying to communicate. Paul is not trying to put women, children, and slaves in their place. He is actually doing something far more revolutionary, far more subversive, and far more beautiful than what it seems on the surface. And so, We're going to jump into it. I'm going to be looking at the text a lot, and so we're going to be working through it. There will also be a lot of bear with me history um, because this is, again, one of those moments where if you can look at the history and the culture that Paul is writing to, then you will begin to understand what he is trying to communicate. So, Bear with me, there will be a little bit of history. The sermon notes are on the website, so I would suggest checking those out. It'll help you follow along a little bit better. So, the Greco-Roman world that the Colossians inhabited was patriarchal. No surprise here. It was a male-dominated culture that viewed wives, children, and slaves as little more than a man's property. Some have said and suggested that what Paul is doing in this passage is little more than reiterating or protecting the status quo. That's saying, Paul is a man. And so he's just simply writing to put wives, children, and slaves in their place. The problem with that theory is Paul. The problem with this idea that Paul is protecting the status quo is simply his own writing. As in T. write puts it, it is in fact extremely unlikely that Paul, having warned young Christians against conforming their lives to the present world, would now require just that of them. Just stick to the status quo. Remember what he says in verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So if he says, set your mind on things that are above, look to the kingdom of Jesus, why just moments later, just a few paragraphs later, would he say, but stick to the status quo? Set your mind on the kingdom in all things except your marriage relationship, except the way you behave towards your children, except the way you behave around your slaves, he is doing something far more subversive and revolutionary than that. Paul is applying the subversive love of Jesus to life at home. He's saying the love of Jesus liberates us from our brokenness. It liberates us from our tie to the way things are and it moves us towards a kingdom not of this world. I believe that Paul suggests a way of being at home that disrupts, upends, and challenges the social hierarchies of his day. I believe he suggests a way of being at home that upends life as normal. It challenges, that's just the way things are. It challenges the status quo. The key to Paul's understanding of subversive love is found in verses 11, 14, and 17. So I'm gonna quickly run through those. In verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. For Paul, we are a people of diversity, equal regardless of our identity, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. In Christ, all is in all. In verse 14, and above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The community of diverse equals are united in love and committed to one another. So a community of diverse equals committed to one another and in love. And then verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That community of diverse individuals committed to one another in love is to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That makes the metric for what is right or what is wrong is not this is how it is, or this is how our culture is, or this is the status quo. Rather, how should it be in Christ? To summarize, Paul suggests that the church is a community of diverse equals, united in love, and working to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it would seem that Paul's domestic instructions would align with those ideals that we are a diverse community committed to one another in love, doing all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He describes a kingdom of people, a community of people that experience every part of their life transformed by this love. And so Paul applies the subversive love to three specific relationships. And so we're going to jump into them. First, the marriage relationship. Second, the parental relationship. And finally, the socioeconomic relationship. I wish I could spend a lot of time on each, but I can't. So we're going to breeze through these pretty quickly. But I think I'll have enough that you'll get the gist of where I'm going. And if you have any questions, please, please, please talk to us. Have a conversation. Don't just go, wow, Alex is the worst. Uh, Please give me a chance to talk it over with you. So first, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. It would have been common in the world of the Colossians for girls to be given away as wives as soon as they hit puberty. 12 to 15 was about the age most women were married. They were given to a man often almost double their age, expected to manage the household and produce male children. It was in this world that Aristotle wrote, as between the sexes, the male is by far nature superior and the female inferior, the male ruler and the female subject. It has, I have been in rooms where Paul is called a misogynist, but his instructions here could not have been any more different. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh to them. Stay with me. Wives, submit to your husbands. This instruction in particular deserves careful attention. First, it was spoken to a culture obsessed with power, And status. Secondly, this terminology has long been used in spaces like this to justify domination and abuse. This cannot be used to justify domination and abuse towards women. If you or anyone you know is using it as such, you are doing the exact opposite of what this scripture is suggesting and you are taking the Lord's name in vain, you are sinning. This cannot be used to justify domination and abuse. In verse 20, Paul uses a term towards children that means obey. If he desired for submit to mean obedience, he would have used the same Greek verb. Submit here is not about obedience, it's not about power, it's not about becoming a doormat to your husband. The term carries the notion of humility and that Paul speaks of in verse 12 and what Christ embodies in Philippians 2. Briefly, Philippians 2, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul calls the wives of the Colossian church to a gracious humility that looks like Jesus. If you think that means subordination, you don't understand who Jesus is, and you don't understand what Paul says just moments later about Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. The very one he said had humbled himself has now been highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is lord to the glory of God the father this is to say that what paul is asking of women is simply to embrace the love of the husband to humble yourself enough to be loved to be shown the goodness of what it means to be in human relationship to just simply submit to being loved This is not a call to submit and to go with unquestioned authority to the husband. This is a call to simply submit to being loved. I believe that he is just simply saying, submit to being cherished, submit to being valued, submit to being in love with your husband. This is seen in the second half Well, let me rephrase. The second half of this command is far more subversive than the first. Because wives were used to being told what to do in this culture. Submit was not a kind of long shot for most women. It was when Paul turns to the husbands that things get dicey. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. While we have an understanding of marriage being about love or the the warm and fuzzy feelings we get with another person, this culture had no concept of love being a part of the marriage contract. The marriage was just that, a contract that seemed mutually beneficial amongst people. And as soon as a wife was married off to her husband, the husband was now entirely free to do whatever he wished with that woman. So the fact that Paul is addressing how husbands should behave towards their women was revolutionary. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Notice that this has nothing to do with leadership or decision making. Male leadership and authority were assumed in the Colossian world. If Paul was talking about leadership, his instruction to men would have been about such. But instead, his instructions are to love one's wife as Christ has loved the church and to put her interests first. In a parallel passage in Ephesians, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I heard someone make the joke, if you ever hear your husband say submit, your response can be, well, then die. In Ephesians, this is what Paul calls us too, that it is this beautiful symmetry of both committed to love and committed to one another. The call of Paul is for husbands and wives to march into life not struggling for power, but in self-sacrificing love to be with one another and for one another. It is painful that so many Christian conversations about this text and its parallel text in Ephesians 5 have to do with hierarchy, power dynamics, or subordination. That is a narrow perspective that revolves around a stunted imagination. An imagination in which it cannot see two equals working to submit themselves to one another working to be about the good of the other. Paul has a great deal to say on mutual submission in 1 Corinthians 7 and Ephesians 5, but we don't have time to cover that. Check them out if you have more questions. But to be honest, this is Cassianized dynamic. We commit to mutual submission as the guiding principle for our marriage. This is to say we share decision-making power household chores, and responsibilities, and I am committed to Cassie's good, and I trust that she is committed to mine, that that is the picture of marriage that Paul depicts, that it is two people committed to the good of the other, that I don't have to worry about where Cassie's intentions are because I trust that she has my good at heart. The call of Paul is for husbands and wives to march into life, not struggling for power, but in self-sacrificing love. And he offers a similar reflection on the parental relationship. From the book of Sirach, a Jewish work written roughly 200 years before Paul's writing, it gives instructions on parenting, but it is also telling about how parenting was understood in the first century. This is what the book of Sirach says. He who loves his son will whip him often, so that he may rejoice at the way he turns out. An unbroken horse turns out stubborn, and an unchecked son turns out headstrong. Pamper a child and he will terrorize you. Play with him and he will grieve you. Do not laugh with him or you will have sorrow with him. And in the end, you will gnash your teeth. Give him no freedom in his youth and do not ignore his errors. Bow down his neck in his youth and beat his sides while he is young. Or else he will become stubborn and disobey you. And you will have sorrow of soul from him. Discipline your son and make his yoke heavy so that he may not you may not be offended by his shamelessness. This is kind of funny, but not if that is the reality of the culture. If the reality of the culture is your job as a parent is to break your child, you're talking about livestock, not the precious gift that a son or a daughter is. But Paul says, children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. In just a few crisp, crisp sentences, Paul says what thousands of books on parenting say in chapters. Children need discipline, and so do parents. That discipline in the parental relationship is mutual. Children are instructed to obey the directives of their parents to the best of their ability. Now, note Paul assumes his audience are children and parents committed to the way of Jesus, So in submitting to their parents, children will learn what it is to live the radical, self-denying road to spiritual maturity. For a parent's duty, and in this culture, a father's particularly, their duty is to guide their children in love, assuring their children that they are loved and valued for who they are, not for who they should be, or might have been, but valued, loved, cherished for who they are. This is a long cry from bow his neck in his youth and beat his sides while he is young. This is a surprisingly new way of living in a culture in which a father has nearly unlimited authority on what he wants to do with his children. Paul recognizes that a heavy hand is discouraging and can cause a child to lose heart. It's a surprisingly nuanced view in the first century. Paul's understanding of the gospel is that of reciprocating love. The parent initiates love simply by cherishing a a child for who they are, and children learn to respond with easy and playful obedience. It is this beautiful reciprocal relationship that subverts the parental relationship of the day. And hearing of Paul's theology and idea of a parental relationship might be a little bit of a sting to anyone who experienced a domineering parent. And I am sorry if that has been your experience or if the parental relationship is one that causes you pain. But take heart in the reality that Jesus is calling us to something better. That he is calling Christian parents to raise their children up by valuing, assuring, and loving them. And that the day, if it ever comes, if that's something you desire, that you have your own or if you have your own work towards loving and assuring them of their value. The call of Paul is for parents and children to march into life, not struggling for power, but in self-sacrificing love. And in verse 22, through the beginning of chapter 4, Paul addresses his final, the socioeconomic relationship. Now, this instruction is easily the most difficult to understand, whereas the ESV uses the term bondservant, the much better and more difficult translation is that of slave. Now, the first century was not the racially motivated uh, antebellum South. Our understanding of slavery in America is different than the understanding of slavery in the the text— That does not excuse it, for at the end of the day, it was still the practice of owning another human. Slavery in all of its forms are evil and wrong. And again, from the book of Sirach, this is how we can understand slavery in the first century. Fodder and a stick and burdens for a donkey, bread and discipline and work for a servant, read Slave. Let your slave to work, and you will find rest. Leave his hands idle, and he will seek liberty. Yoke and throng will bow the neck, and for a wicked servant, there are racks and tortures. Slavery is still slavery. Now, in this passage, Paul does not outright condemn slavery in this or any other passage. But his instructions put cracks in the foundation of slavery and provide an opportunity to begin seeing beyond this evil institution. I, in some part, think that Paul's motivation by not outright condemning slavery would be, it would be the same thing as me saying, hey, don't use a combustion engine. Don't hop in your car and go somewhere. It was so ingrained in the economic and systematic realities that most people cannot imagine, imagine a reality in which slavery wasn't a part of the way things are. And so what Paul does is subtly begin to put cracks in the institution that lays the framework for the progress that will be made thousands of years later. It was and continues to be Christians that work the hardest towards ending the institution of slavery. And it is Paul's subversive and revolutionary writing that begins that trajectory. Again, Paul doesn't outright condemn it, but he is subtle in his cracking of the institution, and it is powerful nonetheless. So quickly going through how he puts holes in the institution of slavery. First, Paul is not putting women, children, or slaves in their place. He's instructing them on what it looks like to be a Christian in the social role that they are already playing. As Ben Witherington puts it, Paul is trying to Christianize a difficult and possibly abusive situation on his first occasion of addressing the Colossians and so to help the subordinate members of the household not merely survive but have a more christian environment in which to operate in this context if paul had said in slavery what likely would have happened is most christian slave owners would have gone that ain't for me and would have kept on keeping on in this regard the institution is in place, but he begins to poke holes in it and he begins to try and create a better situation in the institution that already takes place. It is not ideal, but it's realistic. Paul is a realist helping the slaves experience a reality that is better. And at every turn, Paul is elevating the humanity and dignity of the subordinate and checking the power of the authoritative. Second, his instructions to the slave owner follow his radical assertion of verse 11. Remember verse 11. Here there is no Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. Or in Galatians 3, 28, there's no Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Amongst the people of Christ, the old hierarchies and social orders and economic statuses are being erased. Again, he doesn't, he's not, um, obvious about it, but he is already beginning to lay the groundwork for liberty and for freedom. Third, he addresses the slave directly, instructing them on faithful service, elevating their status. From verse 22 through 25, he spends a great deal talking to someone who has very little status amongst anyone else. He is elevating their role within the Christian assembly, allowing for them to have the imagination to begin seeing themselves once again as a member of the Christian society. He directly addresses the slaves, elevating them to a place of equality. And fourth, he addresses a master's treatment of their slaves in chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. This seemingly innocuous innocuous add-on at the end shatters whatever foundation anyone has for owning another human being. Masters will be held account for the way in which they behave towards their subordinates because they will be held to account by their master. Paul insists on defending the humanity of wives, children, and slaves, appealing to their equal standing in Christ and warning the powerful that they will be held accountable for their actions. This is not Paul challenging the institution directly. This is him laying the framework for liberation that will come centuries later. That all in power will be held accountable for their actions one day. And while Paul doesn't outright condemn slavery, Paul sets Christianity on a trajectory that will eventually inspire slavery's strongest adversaries. Again, keep in mind the context in which Paul speaks into. He is subtly breaking down the distinctions and the social hierarchies that existed for thousands of years before him and thousands of years after him. And he did it all because he was inspired by the gospel of Christ that sees all people set free. In the gospel, Christ is establishing an entirely new social order. One that stands against the exploitive, systematic injustices of the Roman Empire. Can you imagine if Paul sees his role as standing against the exploitive practices of the culture of his day, what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us to stand in the lineage of Paul who stands against the social injustice of his day? What does that mean for us? I imagine a community of people uninterested in taking advantage of one another. I imagine a community of people not obsessed with figuring out where they land in the pecking order, but committed to the good of their neighbor. I imagine marriages built on self-sacrificing love and mutual submission. I imagine parents that foster an environment in which joy is not, or in which obedience is not a battle of wills, but a joyful response. I imagine a world in which dignity is simply assumed and cherished. I imagine a world in which All of our assumed hierarchies, our assumed social orders of that's just the way it is, are subverted by love. The call of Paul is all human relationships. Abandon the struggle for power and embrace self-sacrificing love and work towards a better day. This is the vision that so captures Paul, and this is the gospel and example of Jesus, that we give up our old pursuits of power, and instead we embrace the self-sacrificing way of love. This is what Paul was so captured by. This is the beauty of the gospel message. Worship team, if you want to join me, In John 13, there's this really peculiar story that doesn't make sense to us, in part because we all wear shoes. In John 13, Jesus is sitting at dinner with his disciples. And have you ever been at dinner and there's a problem you all know about, but you're not willing to address it? Have you ever been at a dinner where you all kind of sit in silence and you, you make a side eye at someone because you know that there's a conflict of brewing? Uh, this was one of those moments. At dinner, the, the meal had begun, and 13 men from the Middle East in the first century had sat down for dinner, and their feet were caked with mud dust and whatever they stepped in from that day's journey. Now, in the first century context, your table was often incredibly low, and you actually used one another to kind of lean up, so you actually sat really close. So imagine no AC, low table, leaning on one another, and nobody's feet had been washed from that day's journey. Yeah, you would be making side eyes at people too because there was probably one guy who was supposed to do it, but he decided to be bold that day and he chose not to do it. And at the end of the meal, Jesus gets up and he takes off his outer garment and he gets down on hand and feet and begins to wash the dirt caked, disgusting, sweat soaked feet of his disciples the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one known as the Prince of Peace, the one that sits on the throne of the cosmic kingdom, bent down and began to wash the dirt-soaked feet of his disciples. After some dramatics from the Apostle Peter, Jesus stands up and says, If then... Your Lord and teacher, I have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. The love spoken of in our Colossians passage is not demonstrated in grand gestures. It's not demonstrated in infrequent virtue signaling, it's not demonstrated in words, but it is demonstrated in the moments of taking daily opportunities to affirm your love, to affirm the dignity of someone else. The subversive love of Jesus is born out in everyday moments where we learn to serve those around us simply by being helpful. Jesus didn't lay a plan to trap his disciples. He wasn't like, hey, hey, don't wash their feet. I'm gonna show them. He just simply saw what needed to be done and wasn't too big to act. He simply saw the feet and likely smelt the smell and moved in love to respond to his neighbor's need. Tish Harrison Ward, an author and lead pastor, has this beautiful reflection on domestic life called the Liturgy of the Ordinary. And she recounts this moment in which she saw a sign that says, everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. Everyone wants a revolution. Everyone wants the current way of things to be upended by power and by someone making a decree. Everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. And I think Paul's passage and Jesus's example says that there is something incredible something incredibly powerful about the mundane about simply taking ordinary acts of love and showing that there is a different way to do things. Jesus is offering an invitation to experience a life in which the most mundane moments have been charged with meaning and with significance, in which simply washing someone's feet demonstrates the type of life they are called to live. A life in which stepping in and doing someone's dishes after a long day of work says, Cassie, I love you. A moment in which a dirty diaper being changed is saying, I cherish and value you. A moment in which the pettiness of a coworker is responded to with how can I help? You seem stressed. The subversive love of Jesus is found in everyday, ordinary moments. It's moments of defiance against a self-centered world in which we say there is a different way to love. So this is our call this week. This is the way to practice what Paul is saying. Look for ways in which you can be helpful this week in ways that you are not expected to be. Look for ways in which you can move beyond your status, move beyond your responsibilities, and do something unexpected. Do something helpful. Do something no one expects you to do because they're the manager. Why would they do that? That's That's not a mom's job. That's not a dad's job. That's a kid's job. Let us look for everyday ordinary moments to reveal the type of love that challenges the status quo, that challenges, ah, that's just how it always is. Let's look for radically ordinary moments to insist on the love of our God in our broken world. Let's pray. Father, on days like today, when we come to challenging passages, we know that it's not always easy to work through it, but I pray that whatever little time we had, that we can begin to see the revolution that Paul is beginning in the name of Jesus that he is asserting that wives are to be respected, children are to be cherished, and slaves are to be freed. And in the example of Jesus and in the words of Paul, may you inspire our hearts and our imaginations to see moments in which we can be helpful, moments in which we can do the unexpected and demonstrate the love of our god it's in the name of our, of our servant king we pray